Well, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Matthew 19. We're going to read from verse number 1 of Matthew 19. Continue, of course, in our studies in the subjects and the ethics of, of marriage as taught in the Scriptures of Truth. And here the Lord speaks on the subject, drawing as He does uh, from the beginning, from creation, from Genesis uh, chapter 2. And the Word of God says, Matthew 19, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, He departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them there. And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together... Let not man put asunder. Amen. May God be pleased to guide us in his word again today. We've been working upon this definition of marriage. Here we have it from Malachi chapter 2. If you give me just a second here, I need to change my settings. There we go. You can still see it. Good stuff. All right, so we're looking at this definition, Malachi chapter 2, giving us this covenant of companionship as a definition. Those two words are used in Malachi chapter 2. Now, having thought about this again in the past uh, week or so, uh, I want to remind you that this definition must be understood in light of Genesis 2 and in light of Christ's confirmation of Genesis 2 in his ministry. Because I'm aware that some may argue that the definition that I am offering here, a covenant of companionship, does not rule out so-called same-sex marriage. And I want to be clear that I am ruling out that concept. Now, just for your patience today, I am not going to say every single time today, so-called. I'm going to use the term same-sex marriage as it's used in the world today, understanding that that is a misnomer. It's a contradiction in terms. Okay, so I understand that, put that out at the start, uh, but I am not going every time to say so-called same-sex marriage. But the definition I offer of marriage here, based on Malachi chapter 2, does rest upon the foundation of God's creation ordinance. As the Lord says here, verse number 4, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he draws upon the distinction of creation to then lead into verse number 5. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And so the Genesis understanding of marriage that Christ himself taught and held to, the Genesis understanding is based upon the distinction of male and female. That creation biological distinction is the foundation from which marriage then comes, procreation then comes, and society is built upon the foundation of Christian marriage. It's the definition of marriage drawn from Genesis chapter 2 implies that marriage is an exclusive man-woman relationship. Exclusive. One man, one woman, for life, 
that publicly avowed relationship of man leaving father and mother. You know, we talk about that social contract as he leaves one headship and enters into a new headship, namely the headship of his own family. That matter of that marriage, one man, one woman, that then in turn is consummated as they become one flesh. All of these things come together and they all, they all proceed, they all presume what we term to be heterosexual marriage. Those are the terms that we use uh, today. And so it is, this definition is helpful, but please understand that in light of Genesis chapter 2 and here in Matthew chapter 19. But we are living in a day when we've got to address this subject of same-sex marriage because it is an attack upon God's ethic. It's a a different understanding of ethics itself and then understanding God's ethics. Of course, you'll know about the Bergefeld ruling of the Supreme Court 2015. And again, where the Supreme Court ruled that it was the fundamental right of same-sex couples to engage in marriage. And that it was their right, a fundamental right, even in the Constitution under the 14th Amendment. I'm not going to teach you all of your constitution. You know these things better than I do. Uh, but these things were taught. They rested upon the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. Again, this idea that you couldn't arbitrarily deprive people of life, liberty, or property. The government couldn't do that except by law. And they were saying, well, here are people they are being deprived of their liberty to marry. And so the due process clause was used alongside the equal protection clause Again, that was part of the 14th Amendment, and we'll come back to these things uh, later on, this idea that uh, you should have the equal rights to marry. And so we'll come to those things uh, later on. But what it has certainly revealed to us is that there is tremendous confusion regarding the ethics of, of marriage. People have totally lost track of what is foundational to society taught in the word of the Lord and so today, what I want us to do today, or try to do today, is I want us to think through these things uh, carefully. But I want you guys to do a lot of the work. Okay, so you need to get yourselves uh, prepared for that, to shake yourselves up. Because I know I am preaching to the choir here. I don't believe I've ever heard anybody in this congregation express any sympathy whatsoever to even the very concept of same-sex marriage. But this church is not reflective of churches in the wider society. And there are many churches who are struggling with this issue. And they're, they're hearing the language and they're wondering, maybe they've got a point. Maybe there is something to this. And maybe we shouldn't be so conservative and hard-lined on these issues. And so they present several arguments, concepts, things that you might see on billboards and some sort of same-sex marriage protest and claiming it in the past, or you may hear it even among some liberal churches. So what are we to think? Well, they will say love is love. It's one of the terms they will use. Love is love, and so what should we do about it? Well, what do you think? Should we not let people just love? If love is between a man and a man, should we not just let them enjoy that practice of love? After all, is love not the very beginning of the law? What's wrong if 
a couple love each other. Should they not be allowed to show that and express that in, in marriage? So what would you say? Yeah, I'll take Dan first. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot in that. So I'll take the point, because we're looking at this with this issue particularly. So we haven't gone as far as how we deal with this in society. We're not even remotely near there. We're looking at this in terms of what, how we deal with this, in, in a, perhaps in a, in a liberal context, because I think the danger is, and what Dan says is true, the danger is that this mindset is so pervasive that we find ourselves overwhelmed with these concepts and notions that I do think we've got to fight for our children and our young people, that they understand these principles and can argue for them and argue against them. And that's the key thing here, because we, we will all go to be with the Lord, and then the generation comes behind us, and they've got to be clear regarding these things. Because in, in, in no time at all, 2015 will seem a long time ago. Right now it's very recently, but it'll seem a long time ago very soon, and these become established in society and become, become the norms, and then what's going to happen to our churches? I think Mrs. Shannon, Mrs. Shannon, you're going to say something. Okay, so there's the, so I'll come back to only two seconds. So to tie these together, love rejoices in truth, and truth is God's word. Okay, so when we're coming to define what love is, we're going to define it in those terms. What does love look like? It looks like what God says love looks like. It rejoices in truth, that's 1 Corinthians 13. And again, of course, as Mrs. Shannon says, the Bible governs that love. Okay, sure. Amen. And George. Take George now. Yeah, George. That's interesting. George, George made a good point here. I'll come back to some of this, but he's making the point there that it's by faith that we believe. 
God made male and female. Amen to that. We we believe that God created. What is bizarre in this is that what they're suggesting with same-sex marriage actually denies evolutionary thought as well. It is self-defeating because evolutionary thought has the idea that through procreation the species gets better and stronger, but they're denying the ability for procreation. So it's against even their own concept of, uh, of society. So even the secularist is confused in this regard. And that's, that's why this is so destructive. That there's in, it's internal arguments within themselves, and eventually this will explode or implode. It, it can't be sustained in society. Okay, so you, 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 what the end of it is, I don't know, but it's, it can't be sustained. But in all of this, and this is important, you know, love, love as a construct is not the ultimate ethic. Okay, and I say that because what I, well, what I mean by that is love is the law. Love God and love your neighbor. But love defined by man is not the ultimate ethic. And so our love for our neighbor is governed by our love for God. And love for God is expressed, as John Miller said, by the, by the keeping of God's commandments. We understand we love God because we love his will. We love his order. We love his, his methods of society. And so... Yes, do two people love themselves or love each other? But that love, that love itself is not according to God's commands. And therefore, in God's definition, it's not love. And therefore, sin is harmful. And so when they say, well, I love this man as a man, or I love this woman as a woman says that, and we have this same-sex attraction, and I love them, well, what they're actually doing is they're hating their neighbor. It's not love in any biblical definition because sin is always harmful. And so if this is against God's word, then it's not loving. What they understand, the emotion of love, is then expressed in a harmful fashion, in a sinful manner. And so love is always governed by God's law. Okay, that's that one. It's none of your business. And this is being said again, this is being argued in, in liberal churches who are espousing this idea of, well, You know, really the church has no right to speak into the privacy of people's lives. You know, they they should be allowed to do their own thing. Remember I said perhaps in in another time that sometimes in ethics, consent is the norm now. If you have two consenting adults, then there's there's acceptance there. That becomes the ethical standard. And so it's really none none of your business. Any thoughts on that? How would you deal with the? How would you deal with that? Yeah, George. Okay, so sense being your.
Yeah, so George's point there, I think, George's point is that we do have responsibility to, to warn. But, you know, this society is so confused that there are some who would even advocate the idea that if you saw someone desiring to commit, take their own life, that you should not interfere because of their personal autonomy of the individual to do what is for their good. But thankfully, thankfully, that idea is still very, very narrow. Very few people hold that concept. And so the general thought in society is, well, if you see someone and they're about to harm themselves or take their life, then we should intervene. We should step in to try to protect the individual. And that is, that is generally held when it comes to life. And so there is this general conscience within society, you know, thou shalt not kill. They understand that in their conscience, and they're still expressing that generally. I said with a few exceptions, they're expressing that generally in the wider society. Well, the seventh commandment is the same. Now, I would say, and here, please be cautious. I don't think it is our business to speak to every individual who are sitting around us. I don't think the scriptures teach the Lord did that. I think there's not a case the Lord was, the Lord is not walking down the streets in Galilee and every person who walks past him is pointing out their individual sins. There's a, there's a generality of the teaching of the Bible in, in the church. The Lord condones no sin, rebukes every sin in his ministry. But I don't think it is our duty to, again, to get in everybody's face. And again, as, as Dan has said, this is a very, this is a very, very difficult uh, sin issue. It's so prevalent and there's so much in our face. Okay, so I'm just, you know, as George says, there may, be, there may be members of the family where you've got input, you've got an influence there. But the key thing is we are, it is our business. I'm going to say more societally. Yeah, I'll take... Uh, Yeah, I think that's a very good point. So Ken's, Ken's using the, the illustration of John the Baptist rebuking Herod for his sin, and you know, in the adultery, again, in the sexual realm. Well, that's his private business. But John's making the point. Again, as, a, as an appointed prophet of God, he's, he's got that authority as God's appointed prophet, and he's speaking into that situation. So we, the church absolutely has the business to call out sin. And so it's my duty, as I'm doing this morning, to call this sin out in society. It's going out in the, it's going out of trust and sermon audio. It's available publicly. We are saying as a, as a congregation, this is, this is where we stand. We stand against this uh, concept in wider society. Because one of the things you have in this particular sin, now again, you, you think if there are people around you in the street and they're drunken. You're walking past them in the street. They're high on drugs. They're drunken. They're also committing sin. You have lots of people in your neighborhood and they're committing adultery. You're living with people around you, and they're not married. They're living together. So there's all manner of sins. But this, one, this one's particularly confrontational in the present society because they're being so confrontational in putting it into our face. Okay, so it makes it difficult. There's all manner of sin around us. But this particular issue has such an impact on society and the destabilization of society itself that there is, I believe, a duty of the church, uh, the impact on society, on procreation, that we've got to call this out particularly as a sin against God and against God's order, because it will actually destroy the very fabric of society. This is, this is a very, very significant issue going forward. Sean and then Joe. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's so, Sean's making again the point, this is, it's so public, and there, there's so much, it's, 
yeah, so it's our business, but really they're making sure it's my business as well. Because they're making sure that I believe what they believe and accept what they want me to accept. And again, you, you remember all the, the, the drag queen story or stuff in the libraries with the kids, you know, how, how wicked that was in, in seeking to promote this to the children of the next generation? Joe, and then what we need before. Since your approach. So, just in the matter of our society and our country, we speak against sin because it's a reproach. Yeah. And the righteousness which exalts a nation, sin will bring the judgment of God upon us because we are. Yeah. Amen. So, that's good. No, just this, this concept, I think this is, this is a, it's a wrong understanding of ethics. Just because it's private in your home does not mean that somebody else can't speak into it. Okay? So, that's, that's that one. Very quickly, this one this should be dismissed quickly. It's just Old Testament teaching. Well, you know that's not the case, but let me just make this point, and then we'll, rather than asking you to respond to this one, one of the key things here, and this, I, I want you to understand this. You must have a clear understanding of how to interpret the Old Testament. You've got to get this clear. Because one of the arguments that's presented in the wider community is that the, the anti-Sodomite teaching is in Leviticus, alongside food laws. So you hear this all, well, I can't eat this meat or this fish or all the rest. It's all the same thing. They're all abomination. And so, well, you're not, you're not demanding they don't keep the food laws, but you're demanding that they, they can't be engaged in same-sex marriage. You see, you're, you're, that makes no sense. And so, the, again, they come to the church and they say to the church, well, here's your problem. So you've got to be clear in understanding how to interpret the Old Testament. That there were aspects of civil law government in the Old Testament that are not extended into the New. And so we're not advocating stoning sodomites. We're not advocating that sort of punishment. But we're still saying it's still a sin. Because the civil laws of Israel are grounded upon the moral law of Israel. And so what you see when you come to understand the likes of sin, of course, these things are repeated in the New Testament. Romans 1 is very, very clear regarding the wickedness of homosexuality and sodomy. These things are very, very clear in Romans chapter 1. It's not an Old Testament thing. But you've still got to understand, that's when the arguments will come. They'll say, well, it's in Leviticus, and it's all about food and dietary. It's just, it's just about the nation of Israel. It's no application to the people today. We're now a modern people. We can do this. And of course, no, because the moral law of God applies Prior to the fall, you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you get these foundational principles, male and female. And so these are the things that we've got to hold on to, and so there are these things. And so understand, understand how to properly interpret the Old Testament and accept the fact, yes, there are civil laws, but those civil laws, they are repeated. Some of the, the principles are moral, and the civil laws based upon the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. And some of those things are then repeated in the New Testament. And so you've got to keep those things in, in clear. What about this one? It's my civil right to have the equal right to marry. And this, of course, is the foundation of the Obergefell ruling, this idea of the civil rights. A couple of guys wrote a book called How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays. They wrote this book. And it was called, and after the ball, that was the first name of the book, and after the ball, how America will conquer its fear and hatred of gays. These authors argued that the efforts to normalize homosexuality would fail unless the movement shifted its emphasis to demand for civil rights rather than a moral argument. 
So in the 60s and 70s, there was this kind of moral argument that took place. And again, they didn't get much traction. They had their protests and their marches in Philadelphia and other places. There was all manner, but it was the building up of the civil rights concept that really held traction amongst the people. Because, as you know, there's so much sensitivity in this nation, and and rightly so, for the matter of civil rights. It's held that all men are created equal. And even laying aside the fact they forget that God gives those rights, there's still this proper understanding of people to have the rights, the liberties, to behave and conduct themselves as they choose. And so as time progressed, and you will know this in your own lifetime, there's been the greater understanding that the LGBT group are a discriminated group. They're a minority under oppression. And so they argue this, therefore it is our civil rights or equal rights to, to marry. You know the argument, that's what it's been uh, governed around. So how do you respond to that? What's your thoughts on that one? I'll take Ken and we'll go back we'll from the front back in. Yeah, that's an important, important perspective. Just, so just because the government says a civil right doesn't make it a right. As Ken said, prior to civil war, again, there was the argument for, for slavery as a, as a civil right, that we had the right to, to keep slaves. And of course, they, then the opposite argument came in time, well, it's the right of the slaves to know liberty and freedom. And so the civil rights thing then became, as you understand here, it became a race issue in, in many ways in terms of civil rights. And we had the same issues back in Northern Ireland, not black and white, but in terms of Catholic and Protestant populations. So but that, that concept of a man's liberty and a liberty to act was then taken hold of by the LGBT folks and then said, well, we, we, we deserve the same liberty. Okay, so society, normalizing that doesn't accept it, though, doesn't make it right. But why is it not a right? Why is it not a civil right? We understand well, slavery is not a civil right. It shouldn't be. But why is this also not a civil right? How do you argue for that? Dan. So, yeah, so God, God giving us life doesn't give us the right to sin. You know, that's, that's, that's key. George, you want to say that? Yeah, I was going to say the slavery thing. Well, it's pretty similar. Like, well, there's
the speed of change is, is, is alarming. So I want to go back, George, the point you made, because I want to look at our clock here and how the time's going. This morning we are seeking to answer a full according to the folly. Okay, so I'm, I'm seeking to present the arguments that they present to the church. That's my focus today. Now, the LGBT group are coming to the church with these arguments. It's not their wider society issues. These are things they're saying to liberal churches and in the wider idea, this is why we as churches should embrace this. And so the Equal Marriage Act, so-called, again, that's coming, that's going to really force us as a church to stand against these things. And this is, this is an issue where there is a, a clear line that we must defy the government in, in this issue. We have no right, we have no, we have no recourse but to say no in these matters. Okay, and so I'll come back to that, well, next week of communion. I'll come back to that in two weeks' time. We'll come back and we'll think of the biblical arguments against this. There's a few things regarding this equal right. And, and that is, society must make discriminations regarding rights. Rights are determined. They are governed. There are ideas that are used to then bring laws to restrict rights in certain areas. And those are right and proper restrictions. And so you think of the marriage laws regarding relations or age, that we do not say to 11-year-olds, well, you are a citizen, you're breathing, you're living, you have a right, therefore you can marry at that age. And why, why should a 30-year-old not decide that this 12-year-old has a right to marry them and say, well, well, we'll get married together is our civil rights. And so the government quite correctly restricts civil rights. There are governmental oversight of these issues and the same is true in the church. You know, you have, a, you have a right to praise God, but you don't have a right to sing when I'm preaching. Okay, you, there's a restriction in some of those things. And so there's, there's, there's understanding, there's, there's order, there's structured order in society that governs our rights. And as somebody said, the right is not the right to do wrong. Like you have no right to come up here and steal my Bible and walk away and say, well, I don't have one. You have no right to do that. You have a right to a Bible, but not my Bible. Okay, so there are these, these issues that there are restrictions. And so when you come to marriage, marriage is God-ordained. And so they're asking for the right to do something that is opposed to what God has defined it as being. It's a biological reality, not just a moral reality. And so what they're asking for is not marriage. And so do they want to have, do they want to cohabit? Do they want to live under the same roof and want tax laws and all the rest? Well, but let's just, it's not marriage. Don't call it marriage. Marriage is ordained of God. And it has that, uh, that biological foundation in the things of God. Well, this one I'm going to, I'm going to stop with this one today. People can't help how they feel. And this will begin with this one in two weeks' time. Because in this one, there is some truth to it. And this is the one you've got to be very, very clear about. And so next time we come back, I'm going to look at this issue. Of the concept of same-sex attraction and the so-called gay Christian idea that is really getting traction in some of our liberal churches, and even not-so-liberal churches. And so we've got to be very clear on that issue. Because the thing is, there is some truth that people can't help how they feel. Because the issue... And with this, again, we can close. The issue here is an issue of a sin nature. That as we see society going in this direction, what we are seeing is just another way in which sin works out in the wider world. The heart of man is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. And it will bring out that wickedness in so many different ways. 
And so here it is entirely possible that people may have a propensity to sin in this area. Their minds, their minds are depraved. They don't understand the law of God. As George said earlier, it's by faith that we see these things. And yet the mind of a depraved sinner does not understand the law of God and will not accept the law of God. Their, their emotions are broken. And so their affections will go in the wrong direction. That they will pursue affections in a manner that's not according to God's law. And, and their wills are corrupt and they'll choose the wrong things. And so in a society, particularly in a society that's rebelling against God, so our Romans 1 society, you're going to see what we see today. As God gives society over to its own lust, you're going to see the sinful nature worked out publicly in the manner of promoting of homosexuality. It was there... Go back to the Victorian age in England, that very prudish age, there was undoubtedly homosexuality. But society was so governed by these moral standards that it suppressed that in society. But you, you, you take the shackles off society, and then the sin nature has free expression, and you see these things increasing. It's nothing to do with the water or the air quality. It's sin being expressed because the shackles are taken off in society. And so this is not something to surprise us. Sexual sin in all its forms is under the seventh commandment. All its forms. And so all manner of sexual sin is an expression of man's rebellion against the seventh commandment. All manner. Not just in the same sex area, but in all manner. And so even in your own life, you find yourself and you're struggling. As we'll see tonight in David's life, there's a struggling against heterosexual sin. Well, that's also an expression of the sin nature. And all society within our hearts and the hearts of others must drive us to our knees to pray for God's grace to change lives. The sinners will be born again. Society changed from the inside out. We see the rebirth spreading across the nation. People leaving off their sin and pursuing righteousness. And so all of this subject that ought to cause us to, to love the Lord and to praise Christ for the gospel that we enjoy, whereby we can be set free from our sin. So I think that's probably a good place to end today. And we'll come back, as I say, in two weeks' time, we'll come back and look at this issue of, well, how do we deal? We'll start here. And how do we deal with this issue of same-sex attraction, even within the, the church? And so we'll look at those things in two weeks' time. Any final comments? We have a couple minutes. Any final comments? Mrs. Shannon? Yeah, there's definitely there's been the ordering of these things. I think as, as maybe George mentioned, when you look at the order of these things, societally in America at least, there was the promotion of no fault divorce, and the breaking down of the fabric of marriage, and the idea that marriage is not a sacred institution of God. You then get the promotion of homosexuality as a civil right, because you're just you're you're taking small steps to break down the norms. So normally, one man, woman for life. You break that down, you then begin to promote the idea of homosexuality, and then the transgender ideology, that has come on the heels of all of that. So you're going bit by bit along because the, fa the fabric of society is being dissolved around us. 
and then you bring it to the kids. Now, a number of years ago, I think what was happening in the schools, and I, I am not, I'm not involved in public schooling, so I, I'm not seeking to be a, an expert on what the public schools are doing, but what I've read and understood is that a number of years ago, the schools were told not to suppress those ideas in kids. So if they expressed them, you were to kind of honor them, you were to validate them. But I think as you say, Ms. Shannon, there's an increasing idea of saying, well, this actually is normal. This is completely normal and acceptable. But you know what's happening now already? The medical establishment in both America and in the UK is saying enough's enough. They realize what they're doing is harmful. And so even in, in major medical establishments, there's a kind of the concern, this is not actually good. So I think we're going to see a kickback against some of these ideas. I trust in the mercy of God and common grace that there may be a kickback against the harm this is doing to children. Okay, so we'll, I don't know if we'll, but we may not spend an entire class on the transgender stuff. I think it's just, it is so obviously aberrant and against the will of God. But this issue here is, 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 is being forced upon the church. And we've got to be careful in that regard. Well, let's, let's pray. Uh, I'm sorry to deliver these things on Lord's Day morning, but we've got to, we've got to establish these things. Um, be clear, because from this comes the gospel and our desire for Christ to be preached. So let's seek God's face again. Eternal God, we do come before thee when there's grief in our souls. We would, we would love, O oh Lord, to be spending our time considering the great doctrines of the gospel and meditating upon these things. But we know, O oh Lord, we must earnestly contend for the faith. And so part of that faith is the moral standards of your law. And so, dear Father, in obeying your will, we are seeking to contend for these things today. Help us to do so with the spirit of meekness and humility and love for our fellow men, that we would understand, O oh God, that they are, they are bound to sin, they're in bondage to sin. And we pray that in grace you would set them free, and that we, in, in love toward them, would point them to the only Redeemer of God's elect. Help us to be those who preach Christ to a lost world, a world lost in all manner of corruption, all manner of sins. We thank you for Christ, the Savior of sinners. And bless our souls together today as we pray in his precious name. Amen.